Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. It's Wednesday, February 28th. I'm Stephen Overley. Tech journalist Byron Tao had a freakout moment a few years ago at a wine soaked dinner party. Well, I gotta be a little bit careful since uh, it was, it's a little sensitive, but essentially I got a tip. And this source described essentially a world in which the government had figured out that it could buy the geolocation data of cell phones, millions, possibly even billions of cell phones, mostly collected through apps or online advertisers. That tip became a book called Means of Control, Out Now, that describes a hidden alliance between data brokers and government agencies and seeks to expose the sprawling U.S. data surveillance state. I think it's an examination of the ways in which the government does an end run around some of our constitutional protections by buying data in the open market. That's the big picture thought and thesis of the book. Here's my conversation with Byron. Byron, welcome to the Politico Tech Podcast. Thanks for having me. The book really seems to describe the progression of the U.S. surveillance state, kind of starting with the attacks of September 11th through today. What did you discover about how much digital surveillance Americans are under right now? Well, essentially that as data brokers, as corporate entities that have data on Americans changed, so did these government surveillance programs. So I went back to right after 9-11, there were a number of programs designed to try to understand the world. Essentially, uh, there was the Total Information Awareness Program led by Admiral Poindexter that was experimenting with ingesting a lot of corporate data like credit card transactions and others. They never got to be a full-fledged program, but they were certainly trying, doing experiments with this kind of data. Uh, Then over the years, as social media grew in importance, uh, a lot of vendors sprung up to sell social data, data on the social conversations on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, to governments. As mobile apps and mobile phones became a bigger way that uh, people around the world communicated or engaged in commerce, government surveillance programs sprung up to take advantage of those things. And then as, you know, we're living in this world in which everything is networked, cars, headphones, all manner of strange data that we all generate without even knowing, there are programs to take advantage of that kind of data. You know, the data that you're talking about in this book, a lot of times it's not data that's like collected through traditional legal channels or even that's collected through cyber attacks. It's often the government purchasing this data from companies that have scraped it from mobile phones, ad exchanges, social media. What difference has that made in both what the government knows about people and also how it uses that information? Well, I think what's really interesting here is that a lot of these companies that I profile in the book are virtually unknown to the average American. I think everyone knows what Google has about them. I think everyone knows what Facebook does. But these are companies, tiny, obscure data brokers, in some cases, massive billion-dollar companies, but very little public-facing presence and almost no consumer relationship, uh, direct consumer relationship. And so as these companies gathered more and more information as they expanded into different data sets. And sometimes there are different companies doing different things, right? So some of these companies uh, focus on consumer data, some focus on social data, some focus on movement data. But all of them, eventually, some manner of their data became useful to the government and there was some pathway to sell it. And can you tell me about one of these firms? I know there's many of them mentioned in the book. Is there one that has stuck out to you in your reporting as particularly either shocking or memorable or what have you? 
Well, one that's sort of emblematic of a lot of the journeys of these companies is a company called Xmode. Uh, it started as a mobile phone app that was coded on the University of Virginia campus. Uh, it was originally called Drunk Mode. It was kind of a goofy app designed to keep you from partying too hard or making mistakes when you're drunk. Uh, and eventually the company pivoted towards realizing that the data that came off of the app, such as the location of the user, was actually more valuable than selling the app for 99 cents or free or selling ads against it. So, um, you know, they pivoted to being more of a commercial location data company. They started helping other apps collect location data and became something of a data broker. And then there was interest in government circles around acquiring this kind of data, and Xmode eventually pivoted to becoming something of a government contractor. And this is a story I saw time and time again, where something uh, pops up in the commercial market, often in the D.C. area, but not always, and uh, then someone within the company realizes that that data could also be valuable for the government. And so there becomes this strange pipeline where kind of a goofy mobile phone app designed to keep undergraduates safe ends up becoming a defense contractor. How much tension did you find there is within the government when it comes to the accessibility and use of this data? Because it does seem in reading the book that there is kind of this divide between those who feel a bit uneasy about this information and how it's being utilized and sort of the the appeal, almost intoxicating appeal of like how this can be used for security or for surveillance. Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't want to give the impression that um, these government programs are poorly run or, you know, are violating the civil rights and civil liberties of Americans day to day. Uh, that isn't the case that I found in my reporting. However, you know, it's certainly true that there is this tension between the United States being a, a society that's uh, privacy-oriented, that's skeptical of the government, and the public safety and national security missions of all these government agencies. And that's a tension that plays out throughout my book as lawyers and program managers and uh, elected officials have to try to balance the fact that this data is out there. It's available for the purchase. It's something that Home Depot can use to target ads. And the question that gets asked over and over again inside government is, if Home Depot can use it to target ads, why can't we use it for our very important national security or public safety mission? And it sounds like a lot of them have answered that they can. Most of the government agencies that I looked at are using open source data, whether social data, whether consumer data, or whether geolocation data in some way, shape, or form. Now, often many of them do put privacy protections on it. They limit the amount of people that have access to it. They potentially only use this data in certain circumstances. But um, nearly every entity with a public safety, law enforcement, military, or intelligence mission is probably ingesting this kind of data in some way. And not just that, the government also has these massive classified data stores that the public has very little insight into actually what's in them. And when you combine unclassified data, commercially available data, social media data with the government's classified data, it becomes even more of a powerful tool. It becomes even harder to escape uh, the clutches of these national security entities that have these billion-dollar budgets to dedicate towards data fusion and figuring out what's happening in the world. And in terms of the the checks and balances on this, this question about sort of whether it does tip into any civil liberties concerns, a very political question here for you. To what extent does it matter sort of who is at the top, who is in the Oval Office? And I'm thinking of this, obviously, in the context that we're in an election right now. We could see former President Trump return to, to the White House. I mean, how much does the president matter? Well, a lot of these rules, especially at the federal level, are 
just that, the rules. They're not laws. They're not limits placed by the United States Supreme Court. Um, as far as our laws are concerned, if the government engages in a commercial transaction, it's generally not seen as unlawful to purchase that data, even about American citizens, even in bulk. But just for the purposes of avoiding civil liberties controversies and outcry, a lot of three-letter agencies in the government have voluntarily decided to either sharply limit or not acquire at all U.S. person data. But, you know, those are just policies and they can change and they could change depending on who's in power and what the nation is facing at any given moment. So if the political environment changes, if the threat environment changes, there could be a wholesale reevaluation of the kind of rules that are currently in place. And you saw something like this occur in the debate in 2020 and 2021. So take the summer of 2020, for example. Uh, that summer, there were racial justice protests across the country, um, largely by left left-leaning or liberal activists who took to the streets to call for justice for George Floyd and for a racial reckoning in America's police departments. It was at that time that a lot of public safety entities in the United States were using social media to try to look at what was happening in these protests. And it was largely left-leaning or liberal activists that were uh, skeptical of these police claims that it was right to do that. Fast forward to January 6th when it's largely conservatives or right-wing activists who are descending on the Capitol, who storm the Capitol, who try to unlawfully stop the, the counting of the votes. Uh, all of a sudden, it's actually the other side of the political spectrum that's calling for uh, actually more police uh, monitoring of social spaces because they believe that uh, the government essentially missed January 6th. Um, so a lot of the public perception of the use of data is dependent on who's in power and what the threat is at any given time. This vast information gathering has also led to a rise in global information warfare, like digital propaganda, manipulation. You write in the book, you know, these conflicts fall short of the definition of war, but are nevertheless part of a growing international struggle over power and supremacy. In what ways has that shaped some of the conflicts happening now in the world? Yeah, it's a great question. And I wrote that paragraph in the context of revelations that the United States uh, government, uh, specifically the military, was using sock puppet accounts to do things like uh, broadcast anti-ISIS propaganda into the Middle East. Um, these were sort of fake accounts uh, that were not overtly linked to the U.S. government. And if you think about it for a moment, that's essentially the same thing that Russia did to us in the 2016 election. Now, that's not to draw a moral equivalent between the U.S.'s counterterrorism campaign and Russia's interference in a democratic election, but it is to say that governments, all governments, are starting to see the internet and these information networks as a place where global competition plays out. And the rules of that competition are very unclear. And um, a lot of what happens is cloaked behind uh, anonymity or sock puppet accounts. And it's very difficult to have a true public conversation about what is and isn't a norm in these new kinds of low-grade information warfare operations that we're seeing all over the globe. Well, and more products now are coming online than ever, right? You know, and you write in the book about the, what you call gray data, which is information that sort of generated by this widening world of connected devices, internet connected, Bluetooth connected. How is that changing kind of the nature of surveillance and this data that the government and others have access to? Yeah, so what I call gray data is essentially data that's sort of there for the taking, that just sort of exists, that's the byproduct of 
moving around the web or, or using some sort of service. So think these Bluetooth devices that we all increasingly carry now. Your Bluetooth wireless headphones are actually just constantly pinging everything around it, trying to tell a phone, uh, another endpoint, uh, that it's there. And, you know, these clever governments or their contractors or these private companies have figured out, hey, you know, I could just run a little bit of code on a, a million phones around the world and just start vacuuming up all the Bluetooth signals around it. And some of these contractors have found willing government buyers for this data because governments with billion-dollar budgets can figure out how to use it. And so these technologies aren't being built from the ground up with any of this in mind. Another example I give in the book is car tires. Uh, for example, did you know that your car tires actually broadcast a wireless signal to the central computer of your car telling it what the tire pressure is? Well, that's all well and good, and it's there for perfectly legitimate safety reasons. But of course, governments have figured this out. They figure out that the car tire is a proxy for the car. And if you just put little sensors somewhere or you you know, run the right code on devices that you scatter around the world, then you can kind of track people with car tires. One example that comes up in the book was, you know, abortion access. Abortion access has long been a political flashpoint. It has now, because of the Supreme Court decision, become a real concern from a healthcare access and civil liberty standpoint. I mean, can you walk me through how this data collection can be used to potentially undermine privacy, undermine civil liberties? Yeah. So, I mean, in reporting this book, I've kind of developed this idea that any nightmare use for data you can think of will probably eventually happen, right? It might not happen immediately, but it, it'll happen eventually. So if you're a company and you're creating some product and some use of the data is keeping you up at night, I promise you that will eventually happen. So with abortion access, you know, you, you think about the fact now that there's a patchwork of state laws around abortion and that in the previous era before the Roe v. Wade decision, uh, that was the reality as well. And in some states, there were these unlawful underground abortion clinics where people could go and have the procedure even though it was against state law. And if you imagine trying to set up something like that today – I just don't think it would be possible. And it wouldn't be possible because all the devices we carry around, everywhere we go on an app like Uber, every email or Google query that we make or send is logged somewhere. And the fact is that if a prosecutor in a state where abortion is illegal wants access to that data, they will get it. And so essentially, we've built a society where everything is logged. And when everything is logged, it's very hard to, to move around the world with any sort of privacy or anonymity. As you were writing the book, did you think of a worst case scenario in your own mind of where this might all be headed? Well, I mean, it's a good question. Like for the world as a whole, uh, you know, it's it's hard to get these balance is right, right? Because there are legitimate reasons on the corporate end to collect data, you know, to serve people ads, to because they've become accustomed to getting things for free, to give them services, to, you know, every time you get an email from the airline to have Google conveniently put that into your calendar for you. Those are all great reasons to collect data. On the other hand, you know, public sector entities that are acquiring it actually have important missions, right? Like solving murders is an important thing that we want the government to do. Protecting our, our freedoms and our national security against foreign interests, that's an important thing to do. The hard part is to get the 
balance right. And I don't think we as a society have even begun to have the conversation about how the amalgamation of this data in the hands of corporations, many of whom cooperate with the government in some way, shape, or form, really is transforming the relationship between citizens and corporations and the government and raises these profoundly uncomfortable questions about what the correct balance is and where the line is. And I just don't think in the 20 or 30 years that the internet has been in all of our lives, I don't, I don't think we've, we as a society have really grappled with these questions. You know, I, I don't know if you'll ever release a second edition of the book. You've just gotten the first one done. But we're always talking on this podcast about emerging technologies, things like AI, quantum computing, you name it. If there were a future second edition of this book, I wonder where you sort of see all of this headed and what is the next technology that we should all be thinking about in this context of data collection and surveillance? Well, I think the really interesting questions about AI and intelligence are, are ones that I wasn't quite in a position to answer, um, but they, they're, they're good ones, right? Because the rise of AI means that sorting through larger and larger amounts of data will become easier and that there will be this sort of philosophical question about if a computer looks at your personal information, not a human being, but just an AI system, has your privacy been violated in the same way if, uh, if an FBI analyst or an NSA analyst looked at it. That's a philosophical question that I don't think we have fully grappled with as a society. And as more AI systems and automated data tools come into government, it will raise this profound new privacy question about if an AI looks at my emails, like, is that the same privacy problem as if a human does? And I don't, I don't know the answer, but I'm fascinated to see how this will play out over the next five or 10 years as more of these programs and tools start to use AI. Well, Byron, the book is called Means of Control. Thank you for joining us on Politico Tech. Thanks for having me. That's all for today's Politico Tech. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our managing producer is Annie Reese. Our producer is Afra Abdullah. And our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overley. See you back here tomorrow.